You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23. So we're, we, we were in Philippians 2 for the bulk of this series, but we're coming back here to Jesus' words in John 17 verses 20 through 23. While you're turning there, I I have some other announcements that I'll be talking about at the end of the service, but I want to do this one while it's fresh in my mind. Uh, First of all, to all who have taken Operation Christmas Child boxes and brought them back today, we thank you. We thank you for your giving and your generosity in that. Uh, We thank you for your love uh, for kids that you don't even know personally in that sense and setting. Uh, We do have, I believe, five or six boxes that did not get taken and are unfilled. And if you want to leave today and take one or two of those or, or however many you want to take and go out and get the things for them to fill them, uh, the last day for turn-in uh, nationally is tomorrow. So you would need to take that on your own tomorrow to either the Point Community Church here in Frankfurt or what was the other one, Cheryl? East Frankfurt. Um, church. So those are two drop-off points here um, in Frankfurt. Or if you live in Georgetown, uh, you, you could get in on in a Google search or go to their website and find where in Georgetown you could drop those off as well. Uh, so if you want to take them, just take them with you. You don't need to let us know uh, and get them filled up and then you just need to drop those off uh, sometime tomorrow. But thank you all uh, very much for that generosity. Today we're looking at Jesus' words in this uh, high priestly prayer, as some of your Bibles may have as far as a a description or a subheading uh, for this in John 17. Um, I've heard it said, and I tend to agree with it, uh, this really should be called the Lord's Prayer more than the one in Matthew should be called the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer that we typically talk about out of Matthew is a prayer that he's directing us to pray. This is really the Lord's prayer. This is his prayer on behalf of his disciples at that time. And as we'll see, on behalf of all who would believe in him uh, by virtue of what the disciples would do. And we're going to build off of this as we finish our understanding of what it means to be uh, unified, to have unity in the church. And specifically talking about what it means today to be one. So look at John 17, 20 through 23 to get us started. He prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I would really encourage you this week to take John 17 as a whole and just let it be part of your daily reading this week. To see how Jesus prays for the disciples, to see how Jesus speaks about the unity, the oneness that he had with God the Father. I would really encourage you to to take that and just let it be part of your daily reading this week. But we're going to focus primarily on these verses 20 through 23. And what I want us to see firstly is this, that our unity is built on the foundation of the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, our unity as the collective local church that we're a part of, our unity as the collective global church of all brothers and sisters in Christ is built upon the foundation of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Jesus has been praying here in John 17, and initially he began praying to the Father and speaking of the glory that they shared and the glory that Jesus had even before he came to the earth and how he and the Father shared that, talking about their unity. He begins praying for his disciples in the first part there of John 17 and and praying for them that they might be unified, and and he prays things like, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. We we mentioned that last week in part of the other message, but I don't take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one, reminding us that we're not to be isolated, but we're to be in the midst of it. And these themes have been building since the beginning of the prayer, but really the primarily uh, two themes that are building are the shared glory that they have and the unity of the Father and the Son manifested or made visible in the unity of the disciples. And it's that second part of that theme that is central to us today. The unity that we have, the unity that we should be working for, the unity that we should be fighting to preserve is based upon the foundation of the unity of the Father and the Son. Look there at verse 20. He begins to shift from praying for the disciples and begins to pray for you. Look at what he says. I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who will believe in me is you. And is every other person who has ever believed since Jesus returned to the heavens and every other person who will believe until Jesus comes back. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. And he's praying that we would believe through their word, meaning the the work of the disciples, that they would go on to not only write about but but share and, and live and give their personal testimony of who Jesus was and serve others. And as a result of that, there would be people who would believe. As a result of the disciples' work, you're here today nearly 2,000 years later, perhaps, hopefully, as people who believe. And he says this is predicated on, this is built upon the foundation that he has in unity and oneness with the Father. Just as a very side note kind of a thing, that also serves us really well as a challenge today. Who will believe because of what we have done? Who will believe because of our testimony, because of our works, because of our words, because of our exposure to Christ or having them be exposed to Christ through our lives? We, we have no idea how long this world has. If it has another 2,000 years, could there be somebody 2,000 years who'd be able to look back on your life or my life or our collective life as a church and be able to trace back, oh, this was the beginning that my family believed? What an amazing thought. And you might think to yourself, well, but we're just a small country church, or I'm just, a, I'm, I'm just one person, and I don't really have a platform. And I don't really. What platform did the disciples have? Twelve of them. Now, granted, there were more in that community, but they didn't have a platform. They didn't have a, a focal point of the world on them. And yet God did something in them through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us all the way up to today. 
And he states in these verses again, I do not ask for those only, but those who will believe me through their word. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He goes on to use that terminology again in verses 22 and 23, talking about the oneness or the unity that he has with the Father. Now, some may interject here and say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? He doesn't specifically mention the Holy Spirit here. Jesus has proactively, and particularly in the Gospel of John, helped us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take you to John 7 for just a moment. John 7, beginning at verse 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John writes this in verse 39. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Even in his writings previous to this, or his sayings previous to this, Jesus speaks to it. In John 14, just a couple pages to your left, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and then the promise of the indwelling Spirit will be in you and he even begins to uh, build on this in verse 26 the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that i've said to you so jesus has already in other places in john's gospel and in other gospels as well he has already begun to tell us about the spirit that there is a unity with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, even though it's not specifically mentioned or expressly mentioned here in John 17, that there's a unity here. Now, this does not mean, verses, uh, the verses from 14 and the verses from chapter 7, this does not mean that the Spirit was like waiting in the bullpen, so to speak, and was just waiting for his opportunity. This past Thursday, our third Thursday theology uh, study was about the issue of the Trinity, And we saw Thursday night, for those who were here, that the Spirit and the Father and the Son are woven together from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. It was not that the Spirit was waiting. It was just that that he was coming in a different sense as Jesus was going to be exalted to the heavens. And so the fact that he does not expressly mention the Holy Spirit here in John 17 does not mention that there was not unity among the three. The Bible makes it clear, unity among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is woven all throughout the scriptural testimony of who they are. And so what this teaches us is this, unity in the fellowship of believers, both, again, local, in a church body such as ours, globally, including all who are brothers and sisters in Christ, is to follow the example of the union of the Trinity, And the union of the Trinity were unified in various ways, but I want to give you two today that I think are are quite pertinent for us. And the one is that this, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sought to glorify and lift up one another. They were not jockeying for position. They were not elbowing to see who could be the greatest. 
They were, they were not elbowing each other to see who would be placed on a higher level, the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit. They worked in unison together. They sought to glorify, to lift up one another. And we see that woven through the Gospels. Jesus says things like, I don't speak on my authority, but the Father who sent me. He talks about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will not speak on his authority, but on what's told him. That all would glorify and unify and lift up one another. Think back to Philippians 2 that we've been in and that some of those first opening verses that Paul talks about. Don't think of yourself more than others. Look at others' interests as you look at your own. Don't do things out of selfish ambition or selfish conceit to raise and exalt yourself. He writes those things in Philippians 2 because in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't see any of those things. We see them unified, and they're sought to glorify and lift up one another. Secondly, they were unified in mission and in purpose. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in mission and in purpose for the salvation of man. They work in, in, in purpose, unified for the salvation of mankind. And they work in mission and purpose for the truth that mankind needs. God being the one true God. God being the one whose words are true. Jesus, who John says came in grace and truth. The Holy Spirit, who Jesus says will guide us into all truth. They were unified in mission and purpose. And it was uni unity that was according to the salvation of men, not the jockeying of positions of one to another to see who was greater. And so it's built on that foundation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, our unity is essential to the mission. The unity of the church, locally and globally, the unity of individual brothers and sisters in Christ collectively is essential to the mission of God. Look at verse 21 there in John 17. He's asking for us in verse 20. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, catch this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You get that? Jesus says a result of unity is that the world would know he had been sent. He goes on, verse 22, The glory you've given me I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And then in verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. And then again, catch it again, so that the world may know that you sent me. He's repeating what he just said, but then he adds something else onto it. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That the unity of believers expresses to the world the truth that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he has sent his son in power and he has sent his son in glory. And he has sent his son with purpose. And part of that purpose is that they would know that God sent him, yes. But also part of that purpose is that they would know that God loves them as he has loved his own son. And that is all centered in Jesus' prayer around unity. All of it. It's all centered in Jesus' prayer around whether or not brothers and sisters in Christ are unified to the mission and the purpose of God. Warren Wiersbe says it this way in his commentary about John 17. 
He says, the lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. Jesus clearly paints the picture here as well in other places in the gospels, as well as the various New Testament letters and authors we have, that our actions will either lead a lost world to believe or to reject And it's not just one action, but here specifically for our context today and for the context of John 17 in the context of this sermon series, this one clear action that Jesus is talking about is unity. That a lost world who is not sure if there is a God or if who that God is or if he's real or if he cares anything about them or if he has anything to do with their life and on and on and on. That one of the ways they will see and know him and know that he sent Jesus and know that he loves them as he's loved his own son is by the unity of God's people. And so the unity is essential to the mission And that often raises the question, well, what is the mission? Well, I mentioned it earlier. Two primary reasons, I believe, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were unified for these reasons. One, the glory of God, which glory is simply a word that means the honor, the reputation of God. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were unified in their efforts so that God would receive glory, that his name, the name of Jesus, the name of the Holy Spirit would have honor and reputation attached to it. And then secondly, again, for the salvation of mankind. That is the mission of the church. And so the question as it revolves around unity is, is that our mission? We we make mission statements, and we make vision statements, and we make purpose statements, and and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Uh, A few years ago, I I led you to adopt, and I I guess you adopted it. I hope you adopted it, but uh, this little three-word phrase for our church, glorify, grow, give, that in everything we would seek to glorify God and and make his name known, that we would seek to to grow his kingdom and grow uh, personally in our walk, that we would seek to not only give our time and talents and abilities and everything else, but just to give of ourselves to the kingdom. And and, and churches make these things all the time. They, They have mission statements, vision statements, purpose statements, but the reality of it is, if if those things don't lead us to this twofold mission of the glory of God and of bringing salvation to mankind through our word, our actions, and our lives, we can take all these things and scrap them. The mission often gets clouded among us because of our personal preference. What if I were to start in an effort to have younger Christians or perhaps seekers who are here or who are tuning in, what if I were to start preaching from the New Living Translation so that it would be easier for them to understand? Would you be accepting of that? What if we shifted all the music to hymns? Or what if we shifted it all to contemporary worship? Would you be accepting of that? What if we change the name of the church to reflect a more community feel? Woodlake Community Church sounds awful good to me, just by the way. 
we would do things like that and we would probably begin here. We can't change that. We shouldn't move that. We don't do things that way, so on and so on and so on and so forth. It's necessary for us individually and collectively to consider things that we are holding on to that hinder the message of the gospel, that hinder the glory of God that hinder our unity. Why, why do I go here with the, those kinds of examples? Because the reality is most of the times this unity is in the church, not on theological positions. Now, it does happen. It does happen. There are, there are times where churches or individuals within the church have a, a differing theological bend and, and things happen. But the majority of the time, and certainly in the majority of the time of the time I've been a pastor in 20-some years, and going back even further, been a Christian since the weed lad age of seven, I have seen more disunity over things that are not eternal and over things that are not glory to God focused and over things that are not kingdom and mission focused than I have about anything theologically. And it's time for us individually, collectively, to think about these things continually in our lives. We say, well, but I've got rights. I've got preferences. I, I can think this way. I can do this way. You, 100% right. Absolutely. But can I share with you from Paul for just a moment? 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's talking about whether or not he deserves as a pastor to get paid. And he says this, among other things, in verse 12. He's talked about the fact that, that logically, that, that religiously, legally, they have a right, he and those working alongside him, to get paid for, for pastoring, for preaching, for leading. He says, nevertheless, 1 Corinthians 9, 12, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have someone deprive me of my ground for boasting, and his boasting is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 19 through 20, as he closes, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself was not under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. By all means, I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And in all of that, Paul never did this, which is often the pushback when we start to consider or think about change. Well, we don't want to compromise the gospel. Paul never compromised the gospel. But he became to the Jews what they needed to become him to become to hear it. He became to the Gentiles what they needed him to become to hear it. He became to the weak. He became to those who were covered in by law. He became to those who didn't think anything about the law and lived as wildly as they wanted to. He became all those things. He took all of those blockades away from the hindrance of the gospel. Why? Because Paul understood unity. He understood the kingdom was bigger than just a simple set of principles or ideas from one small group of people. 
Jesus prays for unity here. And understand that when he prays this, it's not a suggestion. He's actually asking for something specific to happen when he says in John 17, verse 20, I ask, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word. There's a specific word here that shows up as the word ask um, that we see in other places in Scripture. So, for example, in Mark 7, there's a Gentile woman who begs Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And the word begged there is the same word that translates ask here. In Luke chapter 5, as Jesus is with the disciples, he, he asked them, asked Peter to put his boat out from the shore so they could go out on the water. And it was asking Simon to move the boat. It wasn't suggesting to Simon to move the boat. It wasn't asking Simon if he wanted to form a committee to move the boat. It wasn't asking Simon if they wanted to do a research study on moving the boat. Simon, move the boat. And when he moves the boat, he has him drop the nets, and Jesus performs that miracle of the catch. In John 4, as an example, the disciples were urging Jesus to eat. And all those words, begged, asked, were urging, asked here in John 17, 20, are, are instances of a word where it's someone asking for something to do, or more specifically for them to do something specific. And here it is Jesus asking for the specific goal of unity. And it is not a suggestion. It is not if it's okay by you. It is not if it doesn't prove to be too hard. He's praying to the Father, but asking of us that we would be one just as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. Bear in mind, all this is taking place just hours before the cross. If you knew your impending death was just hours away, my guess is in our humanness, most of us would really be focusing on ourselves. He's focused on you. When you didn't even know him. He's focused on you before you had heard the first word of the gospel. He's focused on you before he knew every great day and every tribulation day in your life would come. He's focused on you and he's asking for us to be unified. We're going to take the elements of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment and Traditionally and rightly so, when we do this, we remember the cross primarily for its forgiving purposes and intent and its salvation purpose and intent. And that's 100% true and right to do. Today, as we remember what Christ has gone through, we should call to mind and we should be thankful that through his work on the cross, we pay no penalty for sin. There will be nothing asked of me or you who are in Christ for our sin but understand this as well when we do this not only are we in that very narrow sense thinking about this but in a much broader sense by taking this today we are declaring allegiance to Jesus and declaring allegiance to someone means you do what they ask we would dare not partake of that which represents the bread and that which represents the wine his blood Today, lightly, he has asked through his prayer 2,000 years ago that we would be one. And so I ask you to consider these two questions in just a moment prayerfully. 
as we pass out the elements to you today. One is this. Am I prepared to do my part, whatever it may be? Am I prepared to step into my role, whatever it may be, to preserve Christian unity? That goes for us, the local body, that goes to brothers and sisters outside of this local body as well. Am I willing to do my part, whatever it may be, take on my role, whatever it may be, to preserve the unity that Jesus has asked for? And then secondly, am I prepared to do my part, whatever it may be, to ensure the mission of God's kingdom and his purpose remain our focus? That in unity, that I might find myself as Paul saying, yes, I have every right to this. And yes, I have every preference for this, but I dare not take it if it deviates us from the kingdom and the purpose of God. Am I prepared to do my part to preserve Christian unity? Am I prepared to do my part, whatever it may be, to ensure the mission of God's kingdom and his purpose? I would say to you lovingly as a pastor... If you're not willing to answer those two questions or ask those two questions and then respond according to whatever God leads you, you might not want to take this today. Because taking this is declaring allegiance to him. Taking this is saying what Jesus has asked of me, I will do because of what he has done for me. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.